This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. For $5 a month, you can actually see the Thin Green Line interviews and other video content on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and feel like you're part of the conversation. Join us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Thin Green Line podcast. And Wayne and I tonight have a special episode and our first repeat guest since we started the Thin Green Line, Mr. Bill Bodner, who has recently retired, as you guys remember from episode one, the, the special agent in charge of the LA field office of the Drug Enforcement Administration. And... Uh, man bill what we did that almost three years ago post-covid and now brother you are retired you are a free agent and still pushing and spreading the word man how are you welcome welcome tonight glad to have you i am doing great gentlemen great to see you guys thanks for having me back uh yeah but i do feel like maybe a little bit of weight was lifted off my shoulders but i think uh you know for some reason i'm not on a beach and i'm still keeping pretty busy the last couple weeks so that's a good thing and you're just starting to how long have you officially been completed and retired from DEA and, and what have you started since? I know you've got a consulting, um, you're helping out in a lot of ways that you just mentioned a new podcast you're doing and give us a rundown, man. This is exciting transition. So I've been retired for two weeks. November 30th was uh, officially officially my last day. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, 32 years, long career. Uh, yeah. So, so what have I been doing since? Well, I did start uh, a private investigation consulting company I've been doing a little work with that, mostly so far, just trying to get the logistics of business lined up. Um, I'm working part-time 
for the California State Athletic Commission. That's just a labor of love. I love combative sports, boxing, mixed martial arts. So I'm helping them ensure uh, safety and fairness in, in their events. And then finally, uh, I hooked up with a buddy of mine who was who is a retired chief from the California Highway Patrol. And he and I are uh, doing a podcast. We're trying to kick out one episode a week. Our first episode just dropped this week. It's called Truth Nation Podcast. And we try to interject common sense into today's issues, whether it's law enforcement issues. That's our background. That's our ex- expertise. Political issues, social issues, some of the problems that you hear about today. We try to give uh, common sense, fact-based information on them, and also uh, our opinions just from our life experience. So so it's been a lot of fun to kind of uh, just see where this retirement takes me now. For sure. That's a- very, very cool on, on all of that, man. And uh, you definitely, you know, I know when Wayne and I retired, and I know I kind of turned my retirement going into phase two, I wasn't really retiring. You know, we still wanted to do the best we could out there. We're kind of wired to keep going and and you're you're definitely doing a lot of that. It's it's inspiring to see. And congratulations on the podcast. It's the first we're hearing about it called Truth Nation. And uh, just so our listeners and viewers know, where can they find this? It's getting you know you're right off the ground on it. Super exciting times. What platforms will it be on? And and how can we uh, listen to this thing? So it should be uh, pretty much available on all platforms. It's on Apple. It's on uh, it's it's on YouTube. Uh, yeah, it, it should be on all all uh, podcast platforms available for download. Um, looking forward to seeing what interesting topics we can come up with and what kind of unique takes we can we can provide. Excellent, excellent. Well, we will uh, we will be listening ourselves, and definitely for all of our listeners out there, you you've heard Bill before. You know what we stand for in the thin green light, and I'm, we're probably going to have a lot of similar issues. I would imagine that you guys are discussing and that we're discussing. So everybody, be sure to tune into that. Um, and Bill, I got to just go back to when we first met, we had you on, Wayne and I had just started our podcast. It was right after the whole COVID lockdown pandemic. And, you know, we say with every dark negative comes at least a few positives. And I think this podcast was one of them because we got to meet guys like you, um, find out a different side of things. And then from my background as a fish and wildlife officer and Wayne's as well, but especially in California, wanting to tell the story, share some things publicly, and not only look at the problems of drugs cartels, black market, you know, the, the health and safety issues throughout the country, but also take an environmental component and concern for things like pollution, wildlife loss, you know, water tainting and things like that. And obviously since we had that first podcast, things have kind of escalated. And I know you and I had a conversation about a month ago, super excited to see that you were moving on to your phase two. Um, and you sent over an NBC nightly news piece that you had participated in that some of our mutual colleagues and even some of my old team members from the Met had done in Riverside County related to the private land cannabis, black market, you know, network going on through all of California and many other states, but with a different kind of twist. You know, we, we had talked about the Sinaloa, the Jalisco New Generation cartels really driving this business, at least throughout most of my career. And I think yours as well, um, when we got involved from, from different, at, different angles, if you will, but that landscape has changed, and that was a mind-blowing news piece. And I've said it to many other people and actually used some of that data that you generously provided before I testified in the U.S. House of Representatives in October on that issue. And what was crazy about that, guys, is all of these border-connected congressmen and congresswomen that were so concerned about the cartel threats there were almost unaware of the environmental impacts in cannabis and all these other things with fentanyl 
so much into the northern parts of our country and embedded. And Bill, that, that was mind-blowing, a lot of good information. So first, I want to thank you for that. But let's talk about that a little bit tonight, if you can, on how you took that focus, how it switched largely in the cannabis world from the Mexican cartels over to the Chinese cartels and why, because I know you and I were both seeing that in California, these Chinese groups taking over these private lands with even dirtier poisons, definitely egregious environmental impacts, making a ton of black market cash, but for reasons not the public would not normally assume. So um, if, if you can dive into that, man, it's mind-blowing stuff that I think we need to, we need to explore. Yeah, um, and it is true that right now, at least in California, uh, a majority of the public land black market that's unlicensed, unpermitted cannabis that's being grown, especially in Southern California, is grown or controlled by Chinese organized crime. And they've chosen uh, the cannabis industry because it's an easy way for them to generate illicit cash. Now, why do they want to generate this illicit cash? It goes back to probably as far back as 2016. And at, at that time, if you remember, uh, there was, I guess, leading up to the presidential election of 2016, there was a lot of talk about trade tariffs targeting China. There was a lot of talk about, a, I don't know if the term economic war was used, but but the, the, the economic tensions, it's probably the best way to say it like this, the economic tension between the United States and China was, was ratcheting up. So many people in China, uh, decided that they wanted to get their wealth out of the country. They, China had devalued their currency before, which means arbitrarily one day uh, they decide that the currency is not worth what it used to be. And that's a crazy sentiment in this country, but that's actually devaluation of currency has happened a couple times in China. China has very strict what they call capital flight laws. That means uh, they limit the amount of money people Chinese citizens, people who live in China, they limit the amount of money they can take out of the country and invest elsewhere. And they do that because they want to keep their own economy strong. So Chinese organized crime groups have found a way to use the drug trade to circumvent those capital flight laws and get their cash uh, out of China into the United States where they can invest it. The scary thing is, if you look at the, you know, in in I guess in the Chinese culture or in, in the Chinese society, the people that have the most wealth are generally people that are associated with the Communist Party or uh, members of the Communist Party. So those are the people that are actually getting their money out of the country. And the thought is they're bringing it or they're getting it to the United States uh, to fight the, quote, economic war that's coming. So so here's how here's how that works. Someone wants to get, let's say, um, in the case it started, but when we initially saw it, and and by the way, guys, it started with synthetic drugs, uh, mm -hmm. fentanyl and methamphetamine. And that's why since 2016, we've seen just an explosion of these synthetic drugs. Here's why. The chemicals to make those drugs come from China. So what uh, the easiest way to explain what's happening now is uh, a drug cartel in Mexico places a chemical order in China. And let's say it's for $1 million worth of chemicals to make synthetic drugs, fentanyl, and methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. The chemicals get shipped to Mexico. That invoice is outstanding now in China. So a Chinese money launderer will pay that invoice with his own Chinese currency, right? He's, he's a wealthy 
uh, Chinese national living in China. He pays that invoice. And then he solicits people in China and says, does anyone want to trade Chinese currency for U.S. dollars? Mm. Let's say there's someone that says, hey, I have a, and let's just assume a one-to-one conversion of a of a uh, the Chinese currency to U.S. dollars. Someone says, I have a million Chinese, quote, dollars that I want to get out of the country and get in the United States. He takes that million dollars from them in China, right? And so he's already paid the invoice, so he gets his money back. Those drugs, that those chemicals are that the uh, cartels have purchased, they make synthetic drugs, fentanyl and methamphetamine, they ship them to the United States now. Those drugs are sold in the United States, and they generate a million dollars of U.S. currency. And now that Chinese money broker says, who do you want that currency delivered to locally in the United States? And that money is then passed to uh, a Chinese national in the United States. So in essence, what, what happens is the easiest way to think of it is the, the, it's not necessarily cash leaving the country, it's value. So someone someone wants to get their wealth out of China, they get it out of China, they get their wealth out of China in the form of precursor chemicals, and that goes to Mexico. And then from Mexico, it's made into drugs, it comes to the United States, and it's sold here, and then those dollars are passed to whoever that Chinese person designates. So it's a way to circumvent uh, capital flight laws by, by using this kind of uh, trade-based money laundering uh, method. And just to give you an idea how effective it was or how much desire there was for uh, for money to get out of China, it, the Mexican drug cartels used to pay about 6% to launder their money. They drove that number all the way down to zero. The, the Chinese organized crime groups that had, they had such a thirst for this cash in the United States derived from drug sales to accomplish capital flight out of China that they were laundering the money for free. Because they knew that on the Chinese side, the person that wanted to get their money out of China would pay, let's say, 10%. So they were going to make money on the deal somewhere. So there's so much money then uh, coming through the synthetic drug trade. We're seeing an explosion in the amount of synthetic drugs, meth and fentanyl coming in the country. Even that wasn't enough to satisfy this capital flight desire from China to the United States. So what happened? We saw Chinese organized crime get into several other criminal activities in this country that could generate the cash that they would then use to accomplish capital flight out of China. So in that case, someone uh, growing illegal cannabis, they create a million dollars of cash, you know, untraceable cash. Right. Uh, somebody in China wants to get their money out of the country. They pay a Chinese money broker. He holds on to that money. He makes a phone call to the U.S. and they release the money in the form of U.S. dollars here. It's almost like a Hawala type system from, uh, you know, old uh, Afghanistan or or Middle Eastern times. So it's just a, a way of moving wealth by moving value, whether it's in chemicals, uh, goods, or whatever. And it's like I said, it exploded in 2016 when we saw this kind of beginning of an economic. Uh, warfare or at least economic pressure between the U.S. and China. And even today, it's still going. And the, the, the single greatest change I've seen in marijuana has been just the dominance now of uh, Chinese organized crime in the domestic marijuana space, uh, especially in California.
Yeah, it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing to see how effective it's been in, you know, less than 10 years. And I do remember when that transition in the administration, 2016, we started to see it on the ground. We started to see that shift on the ground, especially in Northern California, uh, Los Angeles County, where you were out in the, uh, you know, the, the Inland Empire desert areas of Riverside County, San Bernardino. But now from, you know, dealing with border agents and doing some work on the border myself, we're seeing these military-aged Chinese males coming across, smuggled across, right now with the flooded border and passports. And these are not your riffraff type, uh, you know, stereotypical organized criminal coming across the border. These guys are skilled, they're smart, and they're going right into these grow houses um, that are, for, the, for our viewers to understand the connection when it gets in the environment and the resources, and, you know, we're not even mentioning the health and human safety from what fentanyl and meth are doing to our American public. And where are we at, Bill, about Correct me if I'm wrong, but we're over 100,000 deaths approximately a year now from fentanyl. Yeah, there's almost 110,000. A majority of them are fentanyl. Yeah. And that and that that big rise kind of goes in hand with what we've seen in the cannabis trade um, on the environmental crime. And because the public land deep in the forest stuff is kind of backed off considerably, almost exponentially from the old Sinaloa cartel, it's these private land areas, right, where you're in a rural area, you're in a hoop house, it's an outdoor grow, but it's on private land. And yet the environmental impacts to our wildlife waterways and our water quality have actually gotten worse is what I saw in Siskiyou County firsthand, working up there on a documentary crew with Jeremiah LaRue, the sheriff up in NorCal that you know, what they started to see with the Hmong and especially the Chinese, because I kind of hit there first in California and now the other states. Um, so I think what everybody needs to understand on the thin green line is the the environmental impacts from this money laundering and this wealth gathering and hiding in plain sight and this collaboration between the Mexican cartels and now the Chinese, you know, has exponential effects. It's not just on the drug trade or money laundering. It's gotten to environmental impacts. And, and I thank you very much for exposing this and talking about it. And how much money are we talking about? And this is all cash dollars and it's all laundered and it's not traceable and it's it's in the billions, am I correct? Yeah, it's in the billions. And the interesting, uh, in the NBC piece, by the way, the third uh, iteration, it was a, that was a three-part series. And I think the third part just came out yesterday or a couple days ago. So, uh, so so look for that. And that gets into the human trafficking aspect. Yes. And John, it goes exactly what you're saying, where military-age males um, coming across the border, you know, 10x what it used to be. Um I, I don't know what the numbers were. I saw them uh, a few days ago. It was something like, you know, in, in a couple of years, there had been 342 uh, Chinese national, male Chinese nationals encountered at the border. And now the number was in the thousands just in the past several months. So it, it's it's really been um, crazy. But the, the environmental damage is crazy they're causing. Uh, there's a human trafficking as aspect now. And what I think is even... Uh, more significant and it needs needs a light shined on it or we need to learn more about is where is this money going because back to what I started saying in that in that first piece I did with uh, NBC they spoke to some treasury people and they said the money quote disappeared so so that's billions of dollars that we know is uh, it's wealth from China that through the drug uh, the drug business and by the way the drug business is a, is a good way to uh, clandestinely move money around the world, uh, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars out of China into the United States, 
and where has it gone here? And and no one seems to really know. And that should be uh, a somewhat alarming fact, especially when we see reports of, and these are cases that have been charged, uh, you know, Chinese government having operatives here almost running like their own police departments. Have you heard about that? I've heard a little bit about it. If you could expand on that, that's another sinister side to this that we we kind of in America are well. I guess we're, we're the middle we're the middle ground of where this is all happening. You know, the laundering, the human trafficking, right? The mass accumulation of of capital wealth, and then just cannabis black market environmental damage. But if you can talk more about that, what you're hearing, please do. Yeah, it's just um, there was a case charged in New York, and I know there's been some talk of it in Los Angeles. It's uh, people going around. And almost uh, Chinese nationals going around and almost uh, putting themselves off as Chinese police officers and doing this in uh, in communities where there's a heavy Chinese population. Intimidation, um, you know, talking about relatives or people still back in China. And it's kind of a weird thing that, you know, you, you would think like that, that happens now. Yes, it does. And where does the money that funds that where does the money to fund that come from you know i don't know but it's 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 likely that some of it comes from this whole uh illicit wealth creation thing that we're talking about here mm. yeah and when you talk about all the money bill especially we're in billions of cash dollars that are untraceable and we know geopolitically right now with the turmoil going on between china the u.s and other countries that are aligned one way or the other either china or with the u.s for the net, you know, the world currency standard to change. There's talk of that, of the devaluing the American dollar, the Chinese currency, and other countries that are, you know, trying to make that the dominant currency and obviously economically devalue the American dollar at the expense of all the environmental crime and human trafficking and, and this poisoning we're talking about. Do you think there's a connection there with this cash and how they're amassing that type of wealth to convert later or? Where could that possibly go? So I think, listen, I think that I think that the Chinese Communist Party has what I think is called the 2035 plan or 2045 plan. You have to check me on that. Um, I think that th- this money that they're using the drug trade to accumulate in the United States is definitely being used to further that agenda, uh, without a doubt. It's a way to, um, like I said, clandestinely get cash in the United States, untraceable cash, and use it to further their political agenda and it does come down to uh you know where i think the future is the the future of hey maybe there's not a military quote military conflict but there is an an economic conflict and they're already what i'm saying is they're already fighting it and this is one of the methods they're using to to fight that that conflict right now yeah it it totally adds up and and the thing that's scary about it is that conflict is at the expense of middle America, Western, Eastern, Northern, Southern borders. And here we are dealing with this. And it's ironic how few people know what you've conveyed tonight and how few people were aware of the NBC Nightly News story. And I don't know if it was part one or part two you sent me, but that's the one I shared with the Congressional Committee in written testimony just to try to educate and that I continue to, uh, you know, propagate the word out there so people have a little bit better idea that, okay, there is all this money being made. And in the process, that money is going to be for something. And the, t- the 2035 uh, theory has been, you know, has been pro- uh, basically proposed by other economic 
um, authorities that I've heard through other channels, and it does kind of add up and make sense. But right now, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but we have this this internal problem where we're the wastelands in America for all this to happen at our expense on environmentally, resources, natural resources, health and human safety with fentanyl deaths, methamphetamine, um, and the cartels kind of knowing that between the Chinese cartels and the Mexican cartels, they kind of have a they, they have our number wired. They're obviously working with impunity right now throughout America and on both sides of the border. And I think we all try to continue to, to promote more exposure to the hidden war that we're dealing with on all these levels, Bill. And kudos for to you for bringing this out and just trying to make it more mainstream so people understand what we're dealing with. And I, I personally hope, and like I told the congressional committee, this has to be a domestic priority. We have to look at this as a, 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 a domestic eco-terrorism war that we have going on within American borders and handle it as such. And not just militarily or law enforcement, but education to our kids, how to keep your kids safe from human trafficking, uh, warning signs when kids are getting rolled up and grabbed and adults. And then you mentioned the human trafficking going on in cannabis grows. And I can tell you just in the three years I was out of operations, then going up to Siskiyou County and seeing some of those encampments of people held, you know, kind of against their will, kind of locked in compartments at night and from the same nationality and then being brought out to work like in a labor camp and then not being paid. And you had some experiences down in Southern California that yeah. you and I discussed. Talk a little bit about that to educate that this is not anything but, you know, a, a criminal corporation structure. And there's no love for the fellow man working in these groves at all. Yeah. So w- what we saw in Southern California, um, there were there were situations where, uh, so so first off, a, a normal grow, let's say on average, hey, the, the, on the on the large end of these illegal grows, believe it or not, 600 hoop houses. That's a huge illegal grow. So think of a hoop house as I would generally say a hoop house would hold about a hundred plants. So when you're talking 600 hoop houses, that's a huge number of plants in an illegal grow. On the on the small end, there's some that are maybe three, five hoop houses, 10 hoop houses. Let's say 20 to 50 is somewhere in that range. Uh, they're using very desolate areas in, in Southern California, Northern LA County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, uh, desert areas, wide open areas. They set up their hoop houses and generally they'll have a ring of motorhomes or trailers where people will live on site. What we encountered back in uh, June of 21 when we did a huge operation up there in North LA County with the LA County sheriffs and and your old teams, uh, some of these trailers padlocks on the outside, right? So, So they would be people padlocked in the trailers overnight. And the other part of it, which is more of, I don't, I don't know if I would call it psychological uh, tra- human trafficking or more economic human trafficking. It's almost like uh, the relationship, it's almost like a pimp relationship where, yeah, okay, the first week, the first week, the worker gets their full pay. The second week, the worker gets 75% of their pay. And they, the worker might be a little, might have been a little unhappy about the working conditions and they were thinking about leaving, but now they only got three quarters of their pay. So their employer, the, the criminal organization, owes them money now. So they're not going to leave now because they're owed money. Right. So the next week, maybe they only get half their pay. 
And now, you know, there's a debt building up, which uh, causes them to stick around. There's constant promises of, hey, things are just tough now. We'll pay you next week. We'll pay you next time. Uh, and, and it's almost like an economic carrot that, that the criminal group dangles in front of these people to keep them uh, from disappearing. And they say, they even tell them, hey, if you leave, you know, I'm not going to pay you the, the money I owe you. I want to pay you the money I owe you. Well, you got to stick around and keep working. And those two uh, aspects, the actual uh, lock and key trafficking and um, the more economic or or like what I would term, as I said, pimp style trafficking, those are the two areas where, where I have seen firsthand um, human trafficking in this, uh, in this domestic cannabis thing now. Yeah, we, we saw a lot of the same in Siskiyou, Shasta County. We saw a lot of people that had been transported over from, from the Asian, either, either Hmong or Chinese. And they were the workers, not the trad leaders that were kind of running the operation, but they were in here. And when, when we made raids with Siskiyou County, and this was last May, so May of 22, um, it was mind blowing. They had not been paid for months and they said they right. owed a debt and they, you know, they didn't want to continue. So they didn't want to continue working, but they kind of felt they had to. There was some of that intimidation going along. Um, Something uh, Wayne and I talked about off of the podcast and I've, I've talked about in other podcasts I've appeared on recently was, and this is where you kind of get into the resource, but you get into the animal cruelty thing, which at the end of the day, when you start seeing these, these dogs and, you know, we're all dog lovers in this conversation. Wayne's had canines his whole career. I had canines. We got pet dogs, Bill. I'm sure you've had some family dogs. Yep. And brothers, I was just, I mean, enraged and disgusted when we got to Siskiyou County. Um, for the Narcofornia documentary for Daily Callers Project. And we had no idea this was going on. It was a part of the target of what we were going to capture, who we were going to interview, what we were going to see on the environmental crime side, of, you know, the private land being taken over by these new Chinese cartels. But we were seeing these dogs that were brought into these grow sites to be guard dogs, essentially. And if they were effective as guard dogs, they were, maybe they just weren't fed enough. And they were emaciated and they were mis- uh, miscapped. I mean, it basically fulfilled the statute of cruelty to animals under the California Penal Code. But we saw these dogs that didn't work out at all, and they were just like tortured. They had barbed wire across their necks, across their genitalia. They were cut and scalpeled up. And we met a lady that had basically started a, a dog rehab center for like estranged growside dogs. And were traumatized from abuse. They were cut up. And Wayne, I know this is going to hit you deeply, given all the work you've done with dogs. Um, it was heartbreaking, man. And we went to her facility. We did a hard pivot and interviewed her, checked the dogs out, got to know some of these dogs. She had spent months rehabbing that, you know, weren't vicious anymore. And they would, they would kind of take on some, you know, some pets from us and things like that. Um, that got into the nature of the mindset out in these rural communities. And Bill, I know you know, I mean, from northern LA County, those desert communities, and then you get out in the Inland Empire, you know, there's some families that have been there for a hundred years, still doing agriculture, equestrian stuff, veterans, you know, that, that that fought in our latest wars. And I know what we saw in Siskiyou County was so heartbreaking because besides the cruelty, we have two or three landowners holding on for dear life, not wanting to leave that rural pristine part of Cali, right? On the Oregon border. And they're just like, hey, we're done. We're getting threatened by AK-47s. We're being told our water's going to go away. And farmers and ranchers didn't have water for their crops because their underground water table was so depleted by these illegal wells going on in these Asian grow sites. And it was um, pretty heartbreaking. But the positive side was 
it was getting traction where enough people outside of California were enraged to say, hey, wait a minute, how can that be happening in America? How can we let that happen in communities literally getting taken over by these, you know, transnational criminal organizations, regardless of where they come from? Um, and I know, Bill, you and I, being homeboys of California, saw that border to border. But now, Wayne, in Maine, it's starting to happen in these illegal grow houses. And it's, uh, you know, Michigan and it's Oregon and it's Washington. And it's just spreading out because the market is there and they can operate with impunity, especially in some of these states that regulate one way or another. And it, it seems to be dominated by the Asians. But that little cruelty thing, guys, was really heartbreaking and, and, and enraging. Um, that just adds to an element of the mindset, I think, of what we're dealing with. And everybody's potentially susceptible to it if they're not prepared because cannabis is going to be widespread, regulated or not. And that black market is still thriving, unlike people you know, know everywhere right now. Hey, so when we were in North LA County with, uh, with your old teams back in uh, June 21, we actually encountered a lot of dogs and we had uh, animal control with us. One of the guys that works for me actually adopted two of the dogs from right. one of the sites and he still has them. And interestingly, two two female dogs, uh, like a German Shepherd, uh, maybe like Rhodesian Ridgeback mix or something like that. And uh, they are called Mary and Jane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but we're you know, twenty, right? So so, but but you know, hey, that is that's kind of a credit to him and mm-hmm. and the mindset of the guys you used to work with, the mindset of the guys I used to work with. They're there to, for a mission, but there's also a humanitarian part of it, and they see this, and you know, they say, "Hey, we're not going to leave these dogs out here." And they had coordinated with animal control, and they were taking to. Uh, to a holding facility and he was there like as soon as they, he was able you know i think they held him for a week and then after that week they were up for adoption and he um and he he he, he grabbed them so, so that was that was awesome at least one happy story with dogs from it uh it, it is coming to to every state and um it's a challenge just because it's so profitable you know at Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com regulating it is just so so here's the thing in in that community that that you were talking about uh northern la county people that live there for generations don't forget that that area uh antelope valley and also the high desert area Mm -hmm. there's really not water there john right so in or and marijuana is a cannabis is a thirsty plant so they are having to truck water in um they're drilling wells a lot of the wells illegally 
They're just drilling wells without the proper permitting. Uh, that's having an effect on the water table. There are, and, and now we're getting a little bit into the weeds about some of the kind of weird dangers, but people should be aware of this. Uh, a lot of the water is trucked into the grow sites. So if you if you live in those areas, if, if you've been around those areas, you see these large uh, tanker trucks, right. 3,000 gallon, there are 3,000 gallon water trucks, and they will take it to a filling facility, uh, a pump house, they'll fill up with 3,000 gallons of water, and then they're driving on these very rural roads. There's been several accidents because uh, the, the people are not, hey, that's a difficult truck to drive. Eat. Right. When you're driving a, a tanker truck where, where you're driving above the speed limit on windy roads and that water is sloshing around in the back. Right. You know, it, even though there's baffles and everything else, I understand that, but there's been accidents, there's been trucks going off the road. Uh, some of, there's been accidents that I'm aware of where the drivers were Chinese nationals that weren't supposed to be here or didn't come here legally, no driver's license. And it, it just creates this whole, and, and water theft, water theft, at least uh, in 2021 and 22, water theft was a huge, uh, a huge issue up there. And there were some, farms where you hit the nail on the head their wells dried up because we had literally millions of gallons of uh water being kind of siphoned off to go to all these illegal grows where the uh the people running the grows are not paying for the water they're not paying any taxes they're, they're not paying anything they're just using the environment yeah, that that's the thing that I think frustrates everybody is regardless of what they're gaining from their criminal enterprises, what they're taking, what they're ruining, what they're affecting, and really kind of, you know, what America has become over the years we've been in this great nation. And I think with what we're seeing in all the states now, it just needs a little bit more attention. And especially because starting to peter out toward Wayne's direction a little bit, now that we're finding out it's going on there and Bill... You know, I get the question all the time. It happened right after I retired. You know, the 30,000 foot view, because you weren't just working cannabis like I was focused on because of the environmental component when Game Warden Scott roped into this, which was oxymoronic to begin with, but it made sense. I mean, it was an adaptive kind of, you know, progressive thing we had to get involved in to fight the biggest environmental crimes we were seeing, at least on the West Coast. But I hear it all the time. What will solve this? I mean, obviously, states are regulating one at a time. They're creating new taxation new regulations. In some cases, in California as an example, we see Prop 64, definitely a failure from the standpoint of, you know, curtailing any of this and deterring it when that law was sold as being a deterrent and there was going to be taxation, agencies were going to have reclamation funding, and we were going to basically take a majority of the market out of the black market, stop these cartels. And as you know, completely the opposite happened and it, it, it actually increased. Um, what what's in in your mind brother we talk about national regulation under standards um do you think that could help is there another way the states can do it a little differently because um no real solutions that that are on the table right now politically seem to work so far from what i've seen at least on this side you know i think there has to be uh, listen anytime you're going to uh, legalize something and attempt to regulate it there has to be a compliance bar and I think part of the struggle in California was, or is, not was, is the decriminalization of uh, cannabis cultivation. So right now, if you're growing 10 plants, 10,000 plants, 100,000 plants, it's not a felony. So there's really, 
no disincentive to stay clear of it, right? You're not going to get so. so I, a, a potential solution, and, and again, John, this is something that's very kind of specifically geared toward the area in Southern California we talked about. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on if this would be as effective in Northern California or in a, a place like Maine, uh, Maine, Wayne, little rhyme there. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it would, yeah, I don't know that it would be, but uh, in Southern California, you could, even without putting people in jail, you could address the problem if you did it civilly just by attacking the water, right? Agreed. So right now, uh, those water trucks, they're generally being leased from equipment companies. And even today, by federal law, if if a water truck is used to deliver 3,000 gallons of water to a cannabis grow and then leave, that water truck is subject to forfeiture, seizure. It's subject to seizure and forfeiture by the United States government. So there is a way to address the problem without putting people in jail if that's what uh, the state or federal government wants to do. They just have to do it. You could, in my opinion, at least in Southern California, uh, effectively cut off the water. And you would have to do it by saying if if a company is drilling a well on an unlicensed uh, cannabis farm, their drilling equipment is subject to seizure and forfeiture. And then you would have the drilling companies say, hey, I, that's a $150,000, $200,000 drilling rig. Even if I get it back, it's going to be tied up for six months. I'm not going to be able to make any money with it. I'm going to stay away from drilling that type of well. I truly believe that we could, uh, at least in Southern California, restrict the water to the to the point where it would not be uh, it would be counterproductive to try to grow cannabis down down in the area. Uh, they haven't done that yet, and. And, you know, we've, we've kind of seen the results. Now, in Northern California, I suspect water is a little more plentiful. And, and on the East Coast, also, it's not the desert environment like we see in Riverside, San Bernardino, North LA County. Would restricting, is there a way in those areas? And now, I, just so people are clear, like in this area in Southern California where they're growing mar- uh, cannabis, there's not like water lines, you know? It's not like you have a water spigot coming up out in your grow and you just put a hose in it you're 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 either you're doing one of two things you're you're drilling a well which is expensive so you have to have uh you know a successful grow operation or have financial backers because you're going to sink a lot of money into drilling a well or you're either leasing trucks or paying water delivery companies to ferry water to your grow site uh every couple days three thousand gallons five thousand gallons and what I'm saying is you have been using civil penalties, um, financial fines, asset forfeiture, that could be that could effectively be stopped and you wouldn't have to resort to criminal prosecution. Hey, I'm a believer. I, I think criminal park prosecution should, should be a part of it, but I'm only one person in the state of California and, and a lot of the people I live with don't agree with that. That's fine. There are other ways to do it, but I feel like... Uh, Something needs to be got done now in Northern California. John, it are you able to restrict water like that, or it's just not feasible? No, it, it, it's actually spot on, Bill. What you mentioned that was the attack that Sheriff, uh, Sheriff Jeremiah Larue went after, and stuff we talked about for, more from the outreach uh, documentary format when we were up there filming with him and his team, um, and with my alma mater agency guys from the Cannabis Enforcement Program at California Department of Fish and Wildlife. 
and Waterboard and everybody else, we all believe that absolutely, if you can stop that water theft, however you do it through enforcement action of cease and desist, uh, civil penalties, um, stopping those illegal well drillings going on, because up until we had the good winter, we fortunately had this last year through the spring. The water even, guys, up in Northern California under that beautiful snow-capped, you know, glacier high-altitude 14,000-foot peak called Mount Shasta, it was a massive severe drought level. I mean, the underground water aquifer was so depleted that just a handful of a couple hundred of those illegal wells from those Chinese groups were literally sucking the water out of those farmers for their crops and their and their stock for anybody, uh, you know, working livestock. I mean, it was that impactful. So I do agree with you. It would definitely help. And I know that the the most effective deterrence we're getting is what you just went to, Bill, a big civil case on water loss, any type, any type of environmental impacts, throw in the felonies if you get an EPA banned poison like carbofuran, that's a felony in the penal code, uh, regardless of where the cannabis sits with the misdemeanor. And that was, that was a backbreaker for all of us. And I've even taken it to a, uh, another level of saying, hey, just put the bite back into illegal cannabis. I mean, we have all these regulated growers that came out of the dark after, you know, um, being illegal black market cannabis growers. They might not have been poisoning the environment to the level the cartel cartels were, but they were, you know, using water legally or illegally. And they decided, hey, we're going to regulate. I remember we had 10,000 growers set up in Humboldt County when Prop 64 passed in 2016. And one of the unique things I did as the lieutenant of the MET team is I was tasked with going to California Grower Association meetings and presenting some of the stuff we talk about, the the pictures of the dead animals, water diversions, what the cartels are doing. And the crazy part about it was all these growers freaked out like we were there to work them. And they realized we weren't. It was that right. period to say, hey, guys, it used to be handcuffs. Now it might be handshakes and hugs if we all work together because right. you're you know, you're going to do it by the numbers now. Now you're going to put up eighty dollars to $150,000 in the 11 permits you're going to need. And if we don't stop the black market, you know, your weed cannabis of quality that's organic and tested is going to drop in market value and the black market from the cartels are going to thrive. And sadly, that's what happened. But I think if we went back and put that felony bite back in, and we have the legitimate growing community right behind us on this. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, you know, Right, Bill, you know, from talking to some of these folks, they said, hey, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I was an outlaw. I was getting a felony for 20 years, but I did not poison water. I conserved water as best I can. I did a cash business. I'm an organic farmer. I understand that's wrong now. I want to stay in the business. And now I can't afford to be in the business because I'm getting run out by the black market and I'm paying all these fees and I'm not even breaking even under the current structure. So yeah, put the felony back in illegal growers, take them to jail, do what you got to do. I mean, they've actually backlashed to an extremity. So um, I think a a compromise within that on the water level will always work if we had enough. And I think the biggest problem we're having right now is we're starting to do that in NorCal with our teams. And I think in SoCal as well, in your old area of operations, the problem is they're just out-resourcing us and out-manning us. You know, we're doing four to 10 warrants a week and when we were in Siskiyou County, we saw ten to 15,000 hoop house operations. And that little team of sheriffs and a couple of my, my old Met colleagues from Shasta coming up to help Siskiyou, they were getting four grows a week, maybe maybe five. And right. these, these groups were like, hey, I'm going to lose my grow. No big deal. I got 100 others in this county. 
and I'm just going to keep moving product back east. And I got a vertically, you know, integrated distribution, all cash sale, and they're making millions, if not billions, like you just mentioned before, Bill. So we just got to put more effort to it and put more of that deterrence. And I think it would help. I, I do think it would help in some way. Wayne, thinking of Maine, not really having worked a lot of this before, your area of the woods. Yeah, no, I water's always good. And I think about the guys that run those drill wells. They're pretty common sense, uh, hardworking guys. And if they thought, and Bill hit it on the head when they think about losing their equipment, if they roll in there to drill a well and they're looking at hoop houses and they're going, yeah, I don't know if I want to be part of this because that law they just passed, I can lose my whole rig if I'm going to do this. That's that. Those guys are usually hardworking, you know, uh, family orientated businesses that uh, would probably want no part of that. So will, will you get somebody else drilling a well that wants part of it? Probably. But um, I'm thinking about the companies around me right now that would want no part of that uh, and, and certainly a, a different way to attack it. I sit here and I listen to you guys talk and I'm like, are, are we talking about America? And it's just, uh, it's <laughs> right. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, this, this fall, I went and took my dad, we went to upstate New York to hunt deer and going across the, the border, uh, right there next to Canada and seeing some of the illegal immigrants along our roads. Never, never have I had that. I, I met with a friend that lives four miles from the border over in New York mm-hmm. and he's actually seeing remnants of people crossing the borders illegally and he's beside himself. So it's starting to affect us on the East Coast and on the northern border too. And I, I think we're all, you know, those rural areas are getting more bombarded and we're getting in more in awe and thinking, is this America? And that's when listening to you guys, it's just, that's blowing my mind. And I'm just learning so much and I'm just, uh, that's that's all I can keep going through my mind, you know, that, you know, we got to get the word out to those these people how serious these issues are and that we all need to, you know, attack it in every way we can, whether it's the drilling companies or every way we can to, to take back. And I'm not saying that the plus or the minuses of growing cannabis, it sounds like you guys have a better handle on that than, than I do. Um, it's just, uh, you know, different ways to attack it, but you know, we're letting so much through our borders and so much change in every environment. And it's just, it's just blowing my mind listening to you guys. So, uh, <laughs> in way right now, like this is, you know, federally, this is a law that's on the books. It It's just not uh, this, this civil part of it. It's, it's a law that's on the books. It's mm-hmm. just not enforced. And really all it would take was sending out letters, yeah. send out letters to the drilling companies and say, yeah. Hey, we understand this has been going on. Um, here's what your, here's what your potential liability is. If you get involved in this, you could lose equipment. Here's the statute, et cetera, et cetera. And I think if you sent those letters to the water delivery companies, the equipment leasing companies, the well, the well drilling companies, uh, you would see them step back from getting involved in this. It's just that, like I said earlier, if there's, if there's no accountability, then it's like, eh, why not? You know, right. You know, I think they just need to be told, hey, you can't do this anymore. Mm. And then most of the people are, a lot, most of the people that are in these, you know, small businesses, running these small businesses will say, okay, I get it. You know, we're out. Um, hey, the other thing, guys, and John, we didn't even really touch on this, and, and it's timely because just two days ago, I think Newsweek had an article about a marijuana recall in California. Did you hear about that? 
I heard something. Yeah, I haven't seen the particulars on it though, but I got a ping on that just today, actually. Yeah. So I mean, so that's the other part of it is like, how does that happen? And I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I don't. I'm not speaking uh, specifically about this company because I just don't know what their situation was. But there's a lot of gray market where because these um, companies are kind of getting their butts kicked, the, the legal licensed people are getting their butts kicked. There's a little bit of a tendency to try to get maybe cheaper product to keep their their head above water. Maybe they're going to buy from some unlicensed growers. And again, I'm not talking about this particular case, but what happened is they found uh, a prohibited pesticide. Hey, I'm happy that the state testing did its job, right? So that is a positive thing. They they did a they were doing testing and they found out it was a pesticide. I don't, I don't recall what it was. You're better at that stuff than me, John. But it was something that was banned has been banned for a few years. And they found it in this cannabis and they recalled the cannabis. But, you know, how does that happen? Like, what kind of controls are there now? And is there like lead over from the black market to the legitimate market where we're going to see things like this? And that's the other. And, you know, I don't know if that's so much an environmental concern, but a humanitarian concern is I, I feel like people may not know. Yeah, so they hear, hey, cannabis is legal in California. So wherever I get it from, it's going to be safe. And mm-hmm. that's just not the case. Right. As, as you know, firsthand, today they're, they're, today in California, there's unlicensed cannabis, unra- unregulated cannabis being grown with uh, banned toxic chemicals. And you and I have exchanged lists of, of some of the stuff that's found. And it's scary stuff. So, you know, that, that stuff is out there. And when I hear people kind of having uh you know the attitude where like yeah, it's california everything's legal it's safe it's it's not necessarily safe you really got to i think do your due diligence or, or be careful yeah you know make sure mm. yeah i i think we absolutely need to and i think one of the things i go back from being a california resident and being in at ground zero on this stuff phil when we were both we were at our careers in 2016 when prop 64 dropped and we were told, hey, you guys aren't going to even be doing your job. Your team's going to go away. This is all going to be done in a couple of years. We just, you know, we we solved this problem. And we knew what was going to happen and wasn't going to happen. We were just trying to get ahead of it with education. And we saw what happened. And ultimately, it comes down to it is absolutely a health and human safety standpoint. And for that gray market you're talking about, Bill, I've had countless reports of dispensary weed having some cartel or just unregulated homegrown stuff out of a going into a dispensary it gets that random test and it fails you know whether it's got a, a banned toxic or it's got just another toxic that isn't allowed um, and i think that's one of the biggest selling points of education nationally to say hey weed can be a sedate thing it's regulated on some level in most states now federally they're talking about regulating it at the national standard and maybe even you know rescheduling it and there's been that discussion from the old scheduling, um, you know, criteria, uh, criteria and and categories. But at the end of the day, I think we need to look at that. It's not just even just a weed problem with these transnational groups we're talking about. It's human trafficking. It's child sex trafficking. That the movie Sound of Freedom finally got so many worldwide people so outraged and disgusted, heartbroken. I mean, myself included. When when we saw that movie, guys. I can't tell you how much I almost ripped the padding off the armrest of that recliner in the theater and just how emotionally moving it was that you're seeing so viscerally some of the effects of these groups. 
Um, and people say, hey, you know what? I, I don't smoke weed. I've educated my kids. I'm not going to uh, be a cannabis consumer. Why is this whole cannabis thing a problem? Why do I have to worry about it in my backyard? And it's, well, you may not be a user, but water is being stolen in the process. It's being tainted toxically. Your friends and or your kids are going to run across this when they experiment at a party, as most kids do. Let's be real about cannabis use. You know what? 47 million Americans, give or take, Bill, I think was the last stat I heard that are uh, basically habitual cannabis users. A lot of those are, are people under 30 and the teenagers. And that's what I fear for any of the youth in my family and um, any of our kids uh, out there that they get this type of product. And when you add in fentanyl and meth from these same groups, just a different crime, a different subcontract, if you will. That's where that's where the national impacts, I think, really need to be um, put out there. And I think what we're talking about tonight, um, we've all had long, dedicated, and very rewarding law enforcement careers. I think I speak for all of us to say we had a, a great run and we're blessed to do what we did. And, and we're wanting to impart that on our, you know, our agents and our officers after us. But I've found since phase two, the pen ultimately is mightier than the sword if you rattle enough cages and affect policy and just affect education where people will start to see this for what it is and know that every American can or will be affected at some point by these groups. And it may not be cannabis. It may not be fentanyl. It might be an abduction or yeah. something along those lines. And I think if we look at it globally, we're, we're, we're making a bigger dent. And and uh, since we're basically on both ends of the coast or you know east and west coast right now and everything in between talking tonight, everyone's affected. I, I, mean, I mean, I think you guys would agree with that, but that's that's how we got to look at it, at least from my opinion. I think you're right. And, and I also think we have to not be too proud to say, hey, um, I think we got this wrong. There, yep. there's, there's unintended consequences. I mean, hey, I saw that in my old job. I saw that with things as innocuous as creation of administrative policy. You would yes. create administrative policy and then you would see this other issue pop up and you would say, man, we didn't think of that. We, we, we didn't foresee that happening. And I know when, you know, I, I talk to people about kind of the perfect storm of synthetic drugs, uh, meth and fentanyl, and the reasons behind it, you know, the, the, the first thing we talked about, Chinese capital flight, um, starting in 2016, that was number one. Number two, what else happened in 2016 was uh, marijuana legalization vote in California. So I remember one of the politicians in california and it's not important who i don't remember who uh said hey we're going to put the mexican drug cartels out of business we're going to legalize here and we're going to put them out of business and i i get it. it it put them it did really now put them out of the marijuana business um there's not that much cannabis coming across the border from mexico into the united states it's True. too risky because yeah. that's a that's where it will be seized from you if you try to bring it from Mexico into the United States, it, it will be taken from you and you'll catch a charge doing that. If you grow it on this side, you're probably okay. And all the people that uh, that had growing skills on that side who were really being uh, exploited by the cartels and underpaid, guess what they did? They said, oh, there's more money to be made in the U.S. They came up to the U.S. and they now grow up here. So is it, you know, is it, is it Mexican drug cartels growing cannabis in California? I don't really, I don't think so. It's people who used to grow cannabis for Mexican cartels definitely coming up here looking for work because that's their expertise. 
So that's kind of the second uh, prong of this synthetic drug explosion. And the third thing is just the drug cartels now are moving to, I call them organic, but that's probably not a good term because that's not the strict, uh, you know, that's not the way everyone else, that, that's not the terminology that everyone else would use. I guess, let's say plant-based. They're moving right. from, the drug cartels are now moving from plant-based drugs to chemical-based drugs. Mm-hmm. It used to be, the opiate used to be heroin. We saw black tar heroin, especially in California, coming across the border from Mexico. Uh, not too much of that anymore, much less than there used to be. Now the opiate is synthetic fentanyl. There's no growing season. The drug cartels don't have to maintain huge areas of land and pay people out there to score the plants and scrape the scrape the plants and create the drug. It could be done in a garage, in any climate, in any part of the country. All they need is the chemicals. And the same goes for methamphetamine. That has really replaced cocaine uh for the most part as the stimulant drug now at least here on the west coast um for the same reason man if you're a drug cartel you're going to have to source cocaine from south america smuggle it all the way up into mexico and then smuggle it into the united states just to tack on a, a margin you know you're buying a product and you're selling the same product and you're just making a margin Whereas with meth, they create that right there in Mexico. They're getting the chemicals from China, just like the chemicals for meth. They manufacture it in a lab that they can move around if they have to. And it's, you know, vertical integration, I guess is the term. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't rely on mother nature. It doesn't rely on growing seasons. And those three factors have really caused this explosion of, uh, of synthetic drugs in this country. And even, you know, we've seen, uh, synthetic cannabinoids now, Mm -hmm. um, Luckily, that hasn't become too big a thing yet. We'll see. We'll see where that goes. But hey, that's the thing. There's always, even the best intentioned uh, ideas and policies, if they don't work, we can't be too proud to say, "Hey, we need to kind of go in a different direction." There was unintended unintended consequences, and yeah, we might have addressed this situation, but we created these other three situations that are um, that are alarming or causing harm. We got to rethink this thing. And I hope that's where where we're at. Federally, you know, the federal government has really done, I think, a disservice by kind of just let it, I almost call it uh, lawmaking by memo or by policy memo, because technically this whole past 10 years, cannabis has been just as illegal in 2013 as it is today in 2023. But there's different policy memos that the administration, whatever administration's in charge, they both do it, uh, Republican and Democrat, and they say they they try to use the guise of here's what our priorities are. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do this, and that kind of lets things get all convoluted where we have laws on the books that we're not enforcing, and it just kind of creates a little bit of chaos instead of being bold and saying, "Hey, we we're we're going to legalize. Here's what we're going to do." Or, and if you're not willing to do that. If you're not willing to legalize, then enforce the, the laws that are on the books. But I think really there, there needs to be some decisive action because right now it's very, um, it's, it's such a gray area that it's laws aren't being applied evenly throughout the United States. And um, and it's, it, it's just like, the best way to say it, it's just a big mess. Mm. It's a big yeah. mess. Yeah, we're not making any real progress with that mess. I mean, I think you said that really well. Um, and, and, and I think until we get a, a, com- a committed, you know, objective, a true vision, 
at the federal level, administratively, you guys at the DEA level are kind of hamstrung and doing the best you can with what you have. We are at the state level. Um, and then when fishing game wardens in states that are starting to see this are now suddenly thrown into dealing with transnational criminal groups on refuges, growing weed, because I, I know all over the Midwest and even in the Eastern Seaboard now, I'm, I'm getting more and more reports of that for the small gang groups starting up, the officer safety issues and everything else there. But Bill, when you talked about synthetic drugs going the way they are as the priority, it blew my mind when I started to analyze the math with you guys on what one meth cook and what one run of pills in a dirty fentanyl lab can yield in profit and be made 24-7 in these dirty labs and every third pill is probably going to kill the kid that takes it for pain relief, you know? It's mind-blowing. And the human trafficking side of being such a good investment for these abducted children or these, you know, held for ransom, if you will, and extorted or pressured uh, workers and growth sites, let's say, how much money are you making off that individual every single day versus just selling a pound of, you know, tainted weed? And so we, we got we got a very comprehensive bundle of problems that all come from these groups. And I think we all agree that 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 just has to be looked at globally throughout our entire country and if it's affecting other countries as well. But but right now it's it's kind of wide open um, the way we are with our border issues and stuff. And I know that's Thankfully, we're starting to see from the congressional level of analyzing this more thoroughly and new bills being proposed to try to curtail some of this, the border issues and, you know, take back some internal safety measures where we can regulate through enforcement, through education or whatever within our own borders. I'd like to see a lot more of that happen. And and again, I'm just glad we're all talking about it tonight, gentlemen, because whoever's listening may not know half of this stuff. And I know up until recently, Bill, I didn't know the, the extent of the Chinese connection, you know, even though we were dealing with them directly operationally and after operations. Um, and you, you really kind of blew the door off that with some really good information. And thank you for that, brother. Um, now we got to just get it out as far as we can. And I know, I know we're all going to keep trying and, uh, that's all we can do. And I, I, that's the positive out of this thing. Every time somebody learns about this issue, correct me if I'm wrong guys, but I still get this 15, 20 years after books and documentaries and, and operational, you know, stories. And they go, I have never heard of this. Mm-hmm. How can this be happening in America? This is America. How did we let it get to this? And and they're in disbelief. Some people just, they won't say, I believe it or I don't believe it. They'll just walk away in shock and go, I'm, I'm in overload. You know, I was going to lock my door and hide my kids, man. Um, but there's so many people that still don't get the gist of this because everything they're getting hit with conflict in the nightly news. And we've had a lot of conflict, they, but I'm, I'm for any solution and just, you know, continuing to, to perpetuate what we can to make a difference and at least inform people to make better choices politically all the way down to, you know, Joe public, just trying to live a good life in this great nation. Yeah. And I think you're doing that bill and retirement is, uh, spreading the word. And I, I really appreciate what you've done the last few years and coming into my introduction to criminal justice class and, and talking to my students and being able to educate them at that level. So I, I wanted to say that I really appreciate Hey, let me, let me share something with John about that. So last time I was, you know, and John, we become, we become so jaded in this job. You know what I mean? I, I feel like the, the, the negative effect that being a DEA agent for 32 years had on me was I'm, I'm a little bit cynical. You know, if I, if I, any situation that I see unfolding in front of me, 
I think how it's, uh, I don't know, what's the way to put it? You know, I, I just, I, I expect to be lied to and cheated no matter in, in every step of my life, just because I've been in the drug business for 32 years. And that's normal business, you know, sure. Sure. Yeah. but, but so, so a lot of the things that we see every day, uh, we, we, unfortunately, I don't want to say we take it for granted, but we do get desensitized to them, right? We get desensitized to all the stuff that we see. And I was telling Wayne in his class a story about taking my wife. Now, ho- hopefully the same thing won't happen now, Wayne. <laughs> taking my wife, we, we were da- we were in downtown LA and we went through uh, this area, the, 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 the box, Skid Row. We went through okay. Skid Row and she saw what was going on in Skid Row. And, you know, as we're driving a couple blocks and I look at her and she's crying. And wow. so, so I'm desensitized to what's going on there. But what impacted me was her response, right? Mm-hmm. That reminded me that this isn't right. You know, when you see a family member or, or, you know, a spouse, this thing is having this profound impact on her. And I'm like, this is how it is. You know, this is every day down here. That really was a wake up for me. And it kind of uh, reinvigorated me to say, hey, this this is not right what's going on here. So, it's amazing that we're desensitized to stuff, but when we see our loved ones experience it, it kind of brings it to reality back to us where we say, man, we can't forget that we can't forget that as a community, as a country, as a city, town, county, we just can't accept that. We have to do better, uh, do better for our people, do better for our land, do better for, for everything. So that, that was an interesting one, Wayne. And I will definitely, if you hit me up next year, I'll be right back. Yeah, I certainly will. And the discussion after you left, Bill, was uh, pretty epic because you touched those kids. They were it, you could hit a pin drop, and one of the girls says he really cares. And yeah. It was just you know that, that's what I'm saying. And sometimes, sometimes we even this is going to sound weird, but sometimes we even forget that we care. You know, mm-hmm. we're going through and attacking the everyday's problems, and we're, we're looking at the bigger picture. And we're kind of forgetting to just see what's right in front of us and see the difference that all of us are making uh, every day, I hope, and and just keep uh, keep pushing. But hey, you know, day one or day uh, whatever it is after 32 years, I, I still care. And I know you two guys still care. And that's why that's why we're here tonight saying what we're saying. Yeah, for sure. Del Kudos, Bill. Thanks for all you're doing, brother. And um we look forward to staying in contact, doing some good projects together, and being able to talk to Wayne's kids. And Wayne, I got to tell you, man, the fact that you're teaching college, the next generation, and firing up that motivation and that spirit in America, through their lens, they can be as impassioned without the jadedness because they haven't had 30 years of the constant. And that that fires me up even more, guys. Yep. And when we talk to your kids on this Hidden War issue, Wayne, and Bill talks to the kids, it's going to fire us up, put a little pep in our old step, right? And uh, even if we get to two, three of them, I, I just love that. And, yeah. and I love the motivation I'm seeing from new game wardens that are calling Wayne and I both, Bill, on, hey, man, I saw this, I heard this, I watched this, and I want to be a game warden now. I'm getting ready to go to the academy. What do I need to know? I go, oh, man, you got so much to know. Let's go step one. You know, and and that that does keep us going, guys. It really does keep us going. So we'll keep it up and, and – uh, Bill, thanks a bunch for everything tonight. This is always great to talk to you. Always an honor and uh, 100%. great to see you as a free agent, man. Welcome to Phase 2. Yeah, don't, 
Yeah, and don't forget Bill's uh, new uh, podcast, Truth Nation. And boy, you tackled a heavy subject to start here. The fall of Minneapolis, the role of fentanyl in training played in the death of George Floyd. No, I got to listen to that. Wow. That, that... Hey, just some facts. Oh. And, and, I, and, I, and I say it on that podcast. Uh, I was disgusted when I first heard about that case. Absolutely disgusted. And and there's some other facts uh, that, that came to light since that just caused me to think about things a little different. And that goes to what we should all be doing, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, continuing to, to, mm-hmm. to take in information and don't be afraid to change your mind on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I'm looking forward to listening to Bill. So thanks for doing all you do. And I appreciate it. are where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.